Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe poor execution is the number one reason businesses underachieve. We partner with your management team to help you solve that challenge and unlock the hidden potential that exists in your business. Now, many of us have worked for the dreaded micromanager, and I think we know how that feels. It just zaps the life right out of you. And we swear that we'll never become that kind of leader. But you know what? It's kind of like uh, we say we're never going to become like our father or our mother. We're going to do things differently as a parent. But we often sort of repeat those bad habits without realizing it. And it can leave the senior leaders feeling like the bottleneck with every decision going through them. It really slows down growth and not just of our people, but of our entire company. And we're going to show you how to change that today. In the first segment of today's episode, we're joined by Captain David Marquet, where he's going to share how he turned the worst performing submarine in the entire U.S. Navy into the highest performing one using a very specific leadership approach that he created. And this will help you turn followers into leaders and increase the speed of execution in your business. And in the second segment of today's episode, so it's kind of a two-for-one deal today, we're going to be joined by Captain Jeffrey White, who is in the Naval Reserve Western Region of the Canadian Armed Forces, and he's a colleague of mine. So he's going to uh, join us for a discussion about how he helps companies leverage military tactics to build winning corporate strategies. So we get a little bit of military leadership, a little bit of uh, military strategy today, so it's going to be a packed episode like always. And I just can't wait to get started. And speaking of getting started, we're trying on a new hashtag for size. So we're asking our community, our unleashed community of leaders to please share your takeaways from this episode and any others that you watch when something grabs your attention and post what you're learning on social media if you want to help us grow that community using the hashtag results the pod. That's right. So uh, post your uh, your tantalizing learning and delights using that hashtag. And I also want to thank our show sponsor today, CompuVision. Now, you know that feeling when your technology stops working? Yeah, we've all been there, and maybe even uh, this morning for some of us. Now, good IT companies will fix that problem for you really quickly. But wouldn't it be better if that technology just didn't break down in the first place? Well, that's what CompuVision does. They're an exceptional IT provider, and they make sure the breakdown doesn't happen in the first place. And they shared some alarming stats with me. There's 230,000 new malware threats every single day. CompuVision works hard to keep your organization safe and secure by managing day-to-day -day technology needs, protecting against cyber criminals, and accelerating technology strategy in your business for today and into the future. You can reach out to their team, Kara, David, and Ryan would love to chat with you at compuvision.biz. Now on with today's episode. So in 1981, David Marquet graduated top of his class from the U.S. Naval Academy, an institute renowned for developing leaders to serve the nation. Thereafter, he joined the submarine force where he spent nearly 30 years, ultimately retiring as captain in 2009. David's career took a pivotal turn when unexpectedly he was diverted to take command of the USS Santa Fe when its captain quit. Now, the thing about Santa Fe, it was the worst performing submarine in the entire U.S. Naval fleet. And it was a different kind of submarine than David had worked on before. And so David Marquet began treating his crew as leaders, not followers, kind of out of desperation. And the Santa Fe went from worst to first, achieving the highest retention and operational standings in the Navy. David has since authored the books, Turn the Ship Around, that outlines his unique approach to leadership and leadership is language, the hidden power of what you say and what you don't. Good morning, David, and welcome to Unleashed. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having me on your show. It's uh, it's great to be joined by you. And I was telling you in the pre-show that when we started Unleashed about a year ago, uh, you were on my list right away. I had the great pleasure of seeing you actually speak up in Grand Prairie, Alberta, about five or six years ago. And I'm sure that Kathy and Chuck finally just said, all right, let's get this guy, Jeff, from Alberta off our backs. Just go spend 30 minutes with him and and we can be done with that. So uh, we're so grateful uh, that you said yes to this, David, and uh, and excited to spend some time with you here today. Super. So, David, maybe where we'll start. I mean, you you spent a big part of your your life, not just your career, thinking about leadership. What are some of the problems uh, that you see most prevalent with leadership in general? Yeah, the, the the problem is we've got the wrong map 
the wrong or following the wrong strategy, the wrong playbook, so to speak. Uh, the leadership structures that we teach and we've inherited are patterned, are, are designed for an organization, an, an industrial age organization where it's about doing what you're told. It's over biased towards doing, not thinking. And the result is there's a fundamental mismatch between what we can control and what we're trying to control. And it's basically a coercive model. So it's follow the leader. I tell you what to do. You tell the next people what to do. So I'm in turn being told what to do, which feels terrible. That's why the micromanaging thing. Yeah. And I'm telling people what to do. Since we actually can only control ourselves, we're, we're not focusing on, on the part of our lives that we can control, which is our own behavior. And we're trying to control other people, which is very stressful, and we're being controlled, which is also very stressful. So it's fundamentally coercive and toxic because of this. And it's not the best way to treat human beings. Now it worked in the industrial age factory because I was taking low skilled, low wage, trying to take a, a very complicated job and parse it down to the some minimum um, component and say, okay, all you do is this, put this bolt into this fender, do it yeah. 10,000 times a day and we're good. But as much as we wanna think we're not using that model, most of us, Deep in our deep in our hearts, that's the model that we use. And there's a whole host of maladies that that come from this. And it turns out you don't have to be like that. Yeah. Well, and and it sounds like we're off. We're sort of operating on an old on an old system, on an old operating model that worked but doesn't serve us today. We, you actually had a really interesting tweet that you sent out this morning around uh, DNA that millennials and uh, older generations share the same DNA, so they're just like us, and we're just like them. So the, the difference is kind of the, what people have always wanted in their workplace is uh, it, it hasn't really changed, but now they're kind of demanding that that's what we need to do to, to lead them properly. Yeah, I got to laugh. I mean, uh, we've gone through 5,000 generations of humans and we only just like barely tweaked how we are different, but somehow one generation or two generations, all of a sudden these are like we're, we talk about millennials, like people my age, talk about them like they're like aliens. Yeah. It's like yeah. they have the same DNA as you. And what I think is we actually have it backwards because uh, millennials are living in a world. When I grew up, I had, I had four siblings. So there were six of us living in a house. The average house size was 1,400 square foot in America. Now you have two. So a family of four is living in 2,400 square feet. The amount of square footage per person is way higher. So, hey, there was no mom's basement to live in. I wanted to get out of there as soon, like as soon as possible. But so, so they can say, you know what? Take this job and stuff it. And part, there's like a part of me that's like, well, you gotta stick with it and you gotta work hard and like suck it up. And like, that's frustrating. But on the other yeah. hand, if everyone who was kind of a jerk at work couldn't get anyone to work for them, I think that would be a better world. So I think what we need to do is take what the millennials are trying to teach us and apply it to everybody, not the other way around. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, and I think sort of the, the story that uh, is just so compelling that you share, David, and in, in, in your first book uh, that was a, a bestseller, as I understand it, you'd been studying for an entire year to take over the Olympia. You found out with about two weeks notice that you were now taking over the Santa Fe was a completely different ship uh, than, you, than you had ever operated before. And uh, I, I thought it was kind of timely. The Hunt for Red October was on TV on a Monday night and I couldn't help but watch it thinking, I highly doubt that you were using the same leadership approach that Sean Connery was in that film. Tell us what the approach was that, that helped you take the Santa Fe from the worst performing submarine in the whole Navy to the best performing one. I refuse to tell, I refuse to give orders. The, the, the model that most of us have, and the reason we get promoted is because we make, first of all, we do good work. And then we say, okay, so now you're going to be in a position. So, so you, you're good at doing stuff. So now I'm going to put you in your thinking position, i.e. make decisions. And then you make good decisions. And say, okay, great. Now we're going to make you a leader. And we sort of hold on to that. We say, okay, great. My job is to do good work and make good decisions. This is not the job of the leader. The job is to create a team that 
makes good decisions and then by virtue of that does good work. But we want to, we, we like to hold on to the things that made us who we are. And so I said, I'm going to hold on to those decisions. I'm going to be the decision maker. And this is debilitating. It's exhausting for you. It's fragile for the organization. And it's very unsatisfying for the team. So what you want, what you need to do is give up the control of making decisions. Let the team make as many decisions as possible. Now they can't decide, hey, we make batteries. Okay, so tomorrow we're gonna we're gonna be a forestry company. Yeah, okay, maybe 10 years we can make that transition if we want to, but so so it's bounded, like the decision space is bounded for everybody, but give them as much control as possible. And to so much we say, oh no, here's how you're gonna work, when you're gonna work, what are you gonna wear when you go to work? Like, what is all that? So give them control, let them make decisions, and they'll be happy and you'll be happier. So I, I, made, it, I made a deal with my crew. What happened is I got shifted to a submarine, which I didn't know. And it was physically impossible for me to make these decisions anymore. And I was really, really um, just thrown out of kilter and just like, how's this going to work? It was by, and oh, by the way, it was the worst performing submarine in the fleet. The reason I went there is because the previous guy had quit. And he said, no mas, can't do it someone else take over this mess. And so I'd been in a place where I'd always had the answer and now I didn't have the answer. So it forced me. So the way I think about it is you want to be a no, you, I thought you wanted to be a knowing telling leader, always know the answer, always tell the team. Now I think you want to be a knowing but not telling leader. You should know the answer because if all else fails, at least there's, you're the goalie and you can, you can do the, you can, you can save the team and say, okay, all right, you guys don't have any ideas. Let's try this. But the, the power is not telling the team what to do. You decide just because I know the answer doesn't mean I have to tell the team what to do. People think those two things are coupled. Yeah. Oh, why? Because, oh, I say, let's do this. Let's turn north. Let's change the, make this change to the marketing plan. Let's add this feature to the product. Great. We're making progress. We're over biased towards doing. But when I say, hey, well, what do you guys think? Well, if you were me, what would you do? Or to just tell me more about what you see about the situation. So you want to play over here. This is in the know the answer if if you can, but then resist telling the team what to do and let them struggle with it. Now you're playing for the long run. Now you're developing leaders. Now you're relieving yourself of the burden of knowing everything. Now you're building a learning team. So many good things happen, but it requires you to stop telling people what to do. That's the key. Yeah. And I appreciate the hockey reference with the goalie, David. I yeah, right. I got that in there. We'll appreciate that for sure. Now, is there, is there, a, is there a basic level of training that, a, that, an, that an employee has to have before you can provide that kind of an autonomy, uh, autonomous relationship? Yeah. So when you go to someone and say, no, you make this decision, it, you don't want to abdicate to someone who, who, who's not ready for making the decision. If, and the two things I think you wanna look at are their technical competence, which is kind of what you're getting at, is like their basic level of training. Do they technically know the job? You can't make decisions about the nuclear reactor if you don't know nuclear engineering. Makes, I, I would be irresponsible to let you make that decision. But the second part is what we call clarity or purpose or why, like what are we trying to achieve? And this is probably more on my shoulders to convey to you. And so we'd have all these conversations that, well, I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but let me tell you what we're trying to achieve here. Let me talk about the mission. And you know what? It was super frustrating. Cause like, don't you understand the mission? Of course you understand, you should understand it. Why do I have, why are you forcing me to tell you? But it turns out so much stuff I would know just because of my perspective or the chance, you know, I'm the guy who sits in the middle of meetings with the Admiral. So I would hear them sort of talking and I would get a nuanced sense of the mission that my team didn't have. And so I had to convey that. So I spent more time talking about that and then say, now what, now based on that, what would you do? And they would kind of, and if they just looked at me, I said, okay, great. Talk about it for 10 minutes. I'll come back. I'm going to go refresh my cup of coffee. I'll come back up. You don't need to give them four days. Just say, hey, just you, you guys talk about it. And then when I come back, I want to hear what your ideas are. Yeah. And then and then you hear the ideas. You have to listen to the ideas. You don't have to do what they say. Yeah. But 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 I I, I think you should listen to the ideas. 
So how do you decide, and this is actually an example I had on Monday, David, where uh, we've got a relatively new team member and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try the best that I can to use some of David's methodologies and his leadership approaches. And it, and it was something as simple as when to follow up with a client after we've provided a presentation, right? And so I said, you know, uh, when do you think you, when do you think is a reasonable time frame for you to follow up with her so we can see if she wants to move forward? And, uh, you know, she said a month and then she said, what, and she said, what do you think? And I said, uh, two weeks. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I failed miserably. How do we handle those situations? How do we provide? Not, not, well, not like not necessarily. I'm not sure I would call yeah. it a failure. I mean, again, okay. so step number one is we measure, we measure our lives. We're again, I, I talk about these over biases. Uh, so, so we measure our lives. It's overweighted in production. So, so when you say, well, I failed, it's, it's okay. She got the wrong answer, but there's always two vectors. There's, there's what we're doing and what we're learning. And if you say, well, did I learn something? You always learn something. And so I, what I learned was she, maybe she doesn't have the same sense of urgency that I do. Maybe she's actually, maybe in a strange way, she's actually right. Now you don't think that was right, but maybe she, Maybe she is. So you could run an experiment and you could say, you know what? Let's do that. Do, do a month. And let's see what I would do a, two weeks, but let's do a month. I want to run an experiment and then I want to see what happens. Now you gotta, I wouldn't run that experiment for a year with your top 10 leads, but, uh, and because then what you're doing is you're putting on a learning hat and you're inviting her into the learning process, but you're, you're better off where you are now than if you just said, yeah, follow up in two weeks. Yeah, no, that, that, ma that makes some sense. And I feel a little bit better. Uh, David, you, you also talk a lot about the difference between compliance and commitment. And, and that, that's really interesting for me to hear more about what is that, what does that mean for us as leaders? Compliance is how you design the, uh, the existing leadership um, paradigm. You do what you're told, you comply. Teams comply, and we see this all the time. Why did Boeing launch the Boeing 737 MAX faulty software? We know now the test pilots knew there were problems with the thing because they complied with their job. Why, did the, why, why in Volkswagen do you have at least 100 engineers colluding on this diesel thing? Why? Because they they were compliant, and compliance is what we want. We we don't admit that. We go, oh, I really want to know what you think, but asterisk. But at the end of the day, you really need to do what you're told. And compliance is is an extrinsic way of motivating people. In other words, when you hear people, well, I should do this, or I I am supposed to do this. It's I'm being imposed from the outside to act in a certain way. Commitment comes from within. It's an intrinsic motivator. I'm doing this because I want to. I love it. I think it's the right thing to do. If no one were watching, I would still, this is exactly what I would do. I personally believe the vast majority of humans are, are good, and it would be incredibly improbable to have a whole bunch of engineers somehow agree on their own to make this diesel cheap. However, it's highly likely that thrown in a highly top, both Boeing and, and Volkswagen have highly command and control compliant cultures. Uh, Boeing, because it, it tends to be a sort of a very kind of a military, um, it's a military-like hierarchy and, and Volkswagen, a bit of the same, but inherited from the uh, Porsche founders and the way those, those people just happen to behave. And so you put people in a, in a do what you're told culture, and then you give them these objectives, they're going to work to, to achieve those objectives. And when it comes to, well, I can either tell my boss we're not, we can't do it, or I can take a corner here in those compliant cultures. That's what you're going to get because at the end of the day, it's the, it's the doing what you're told that re relieves people of responsibility of their behavior. Yeah. Well, I was told to do it. That's the that is the oldest excuse for bad behavior on the planet. And so if you don't want to hear your people saying that, stop telling them what to do. Yeah. 
So what, so what are some ways of some, like some very tactical approaches, I suppose, David, we could take to create an organization more of uh, from, from a commitment, intrinsic motivated place? Yeah, so for us, language is, is everything. Just play, just listen to the language very, very carefully and just tweak the language. And I'm gonna show, hopefully this will come up okay, but I wanna show, um, I'm bringing oh, yeah. up, this is, uh, we call this the ladder of leadership. And the idea is you, you, you wanna say, okay, where is the team person coming to me? They come to me with, tell me what to do. And that sounds, there's a lot of, it could sound, hey, um, you guys wanna want make just a screenshot of this because this is, this is like our secret weapon, simple, but unbelievably powerful. Now, tell, someone, up, someone coming to you and saying, tell me what to do, isn't bad. At least they recognize a decision is needed. So we don't say, no, 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 that's bad. Don't ask me what to, to tell you, you tell me. That's jumping too high. That's, that's, that's not gonna be effective. The first step above tell me what to do is observation and description. It's what do you see? And so then you say, well, tell me more. How do you see it? What do you know about this that I don't know? And then they start talking. So if you want people to say what they think, you need two things. One, they have to actually be talking. And two, then they have to feel okay to say something that is risky. So then you say, well, what do you think? And that, like, and that tends to be a little bit backward looking. Okay, how do we get here? What the causes? And, and then you go to, well, what would you like to do? Or if you were me, what would you do? Or if you were the CEO, what would you do? If you were the customer, what do you think would be best? And then, which is permission-based, which means if you don't say yes, the answer is no. Right. And then ultimately, you want, our, for us, this magic is intent, which is if I don't say no, the answer is yes. And, and when you have an organization that's an intent-based organization, People are walking around saying, hey, I got this idea. I got to make this decision. Uh, so a lot of times people don't realize that they're making decisions. They think about it as doing. So for your person who's got to follow up, I got to follow up. They're thinking of an action. But it's really a decision. How long do I wait to follow up? That's a decision. Hey, got to make a decision. How long do I wait to follow up? I'm thinking about a month. What is everyone to think? Yeah. And and now we're inviting feedback. Don't teach people to give feedback. No one cares. Yeah. Teach people to invite feedback. Hey, how'd I do? How'd I do in that meeting? How'd I sound? How, what do you think of this plan? Before we do it, don't say, don't wait a month and say, yeah, I decided to wait a month. No, it's ahead of time. And now we're in, now, so there's just all this buzz, this crosstalk. And then, and then uh, if she says to you, let's say you happen to be the decision maker on the time length thing, and you say, Hey Jeff, I plan on I intend to wait a month and then and you just you miss the email, you never respond. That's she has permission. That's what she's gonna do. I yeah. intend to change the marketing plan. I intend to change the offer. I intend to uh, engage, blah, 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 blah. What happens is they own it. Yeah. They 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 can never say, oh well, that knucklehead Jeff told me to blah, blah, blah. And I knew it was, didn't make sense, but we're rewarded for doing what we're told. Yeah, no, that is that is a great tip. And I, I think one of the most anxiety inducing exercises that we can do in or out of the workplace is give somebody feedback. And uh, if we can create a culture where we're inviting it, that just it just unleashes these great relationships and these great conversations. So I, I can certainly see that. Uh, uh, David, as soon as I read your book, and this goes back a number of years ago, your first book, the thing that uh, that I tried using the, the the quickest was the intentional language that you use, and so um, maybe just describe how that what that would look like in the workplace. So, someone comes to you asking for what they should do. How would you actually turn that around into an intention based conversation? Pretty pretty much uh, just like I described. So first of all, I tune my ear, and I say, okay, where are they? They're as they're asking me to tell them. They're asking me to give them the answer. Now, unless it's it's a really short notice thing, like, hey, the meeting's in 30 seconds, <laughs> um, I would probably wanna get, I would invite them. The keyword is invite. So we invite them to higher levels. You don't coerce, you don't order them, you don't manipulate them, but you invite them to higher levels. And, and I would just, I remember it's observation and description. Think about it as the um, buttons on the, on the VCR. 
pause, rewind, fast forward. And you got to go in that sequence because we're moving from safe to vulnerable, but we're moving from less mental engagement to greater mental engagement. So, hey, well, just tell me what, describe it. Description is unemotional. It's not scary. Well, this is what I think, blah, blah, blah. Here's, here's what I see. They're a $100 million company, uh, whatever. Okay, great. Uh, then you go to rewind, which is causal. So now we're going to the next level of thinking. We're creating linkages and causes. What, what's behind it? Why are they acting this way or whatever, like whatever you think the thing is. And then, yeah. then you go, now you go to the future because we're moving from certain to uncertain. So the future is the least certain of those three domains. The present is the most certain, the past is less uncertain. And then the future is more, and then the future is most uncertain. I can be wrong, yeah. scary. Yeah. Making decisions, we'll always remember, decisions pass through an emotional circuitry of the brain. All decisions ultimately are emotional decisions, are invoke emotion. No matter how dispassionate engineering, how, no, how many spreadsheets you got, at the end of the day, you got to invoke an emotion to make the decision. Yeah, no, that's good. That's helpful, David. And I mean, it seems a little bit different than delegation in some ways too. Like, and I can imagine like going into the Santa Fe, all of the things you had to delegate, like, do you have some simple tips on how can we delegate more effectively to ensure the thing gets done on time and in the way that we expected it to or wanted to? Yeah, so so delegation to me is I decide what to do, but I'm making going to tell you to do it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, I mean. Yeah. So so here here's the thing, and, and this is advice for anything that you want to do. Pra you got to practice it, and so we you so I suggest you practice practice in your personal life. So for example, before COVID. Uh, knock down all my travel. I used to go out to a lot of restaurants, travel a lot with the restaurants. And I, my thing would be, I would see if I could get the server to choose my meal without putting it in front, without knowing what it was. Because I would say, hey, you pick. And they'll say, okay, well, I recommend chicken or fish. What would you like? I say, no, 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 no. You're going to pick. You're going to decide. And, and so you have to practice not making decisions and you, and you got to practice getting someone else to make a decision that affects you and what you're going to find from doing that there's a whole lot of things you're going to discover about yourself when you start doing that and so then the kind of things that people are doing during covid is they're saying i'm letting someone else pick the next book i read i'm letting someone else pick what we're going to watch on netflix tonight i'm letting someone else uh, schedule our vacation this summer where I anticipate we're going to be vaccinated and ready to go. I'm letting someone else uh, choose the next vehicle or something. But but okay. but two things have got to happen. Number one, you're going to feel something, I'm guessing. You're I'm already feel, I'm already feeling that. Yeah, you're going to feel a certain anxiety that I want you to okay. feel that you have and you have to understand oh, I just landed in Korea, I'm jet lagged and it's weird food and it's, I don't understand the language. Yeah. How comfortable does it feel to do the same thing versus, oh, I'm at a Timmy Hortons, big deal, right? So, yeah. so, so, so understanding that. And then the second thing is, you're gonna have to read the person and you're because you have, it's, and I'll just give you a, a secret. It's about making it safe for that person to make that decision for you. And in order to do that, small makes it safe. Small and choice makes it safe. If they don't have a choice, it won't feel safe. And if you things like a big thing, it won't feel safe. So if you say, well, pick my whole meal, and they say, hey, I don't know. Then you say, well, how can you how about you just pick the wine? Or how about you just pick the main course? Like so small, make it adjust it. And you have to read them. You have to, and the final thing is you got to connect with them as a human being. Yeah. So uh, we think leadership is more like a sport. There's too much talk about stuff, and not like just practice it. Just try stuff. Yeah. So if you want to give up control, try it. 
go through a whole day where you never make any decisions. And then yeah. you get, you ask someone else to make these decisions for you and just like, see what you learn. I like it. A simple way to condition ourselves to a new way of, uh, of behaving. And I know, I know our, our time is running short here, David. I, I, I feel compelled to ask you about groupthink a little bit though, because I, I, I've been a fan of your approach to that. And, and you see some problems with the way a lot of teams make decisions. What are some tips that you have for teams to make better decisions and avoid groupthink? Yeah, so imagine you're in a meeting and we're, we're making a decision. Um, I like to use, hey, we're gonna launch the product. Yeah. So it's a week before 737 Max launch. It's a week before a software update, whatever it happens to be. And we gotta make, so it's a decision. Now we could view it as, so step one, you gotta understand that's a decision. Uh, too many companies view it as, oh, it's the next thing on the calendar. So of course we're gonna do it. So, okay, so right, we're thinking about this as a decision, which means we can say no. And typically what happens is the CEO comes in and says, hey, so we've done all this work, we're ready to go, right? Uh, any last objections before we launch? And so at this point, it's already postured, like it's, it's default, the default state is launch. And it's socially uh, discouraged to be the person who says, well, actually I'm, so you're going to go against the CEO and the group and the default to say, yeah, actually, I don't think we've done enough testing. We, I, I recommend delay. So, so when you're running the meeting, one, if you're the person in authority, hold back on what you think. What you want to do for, is vote first, then discuss, not the other way around. Because as people discuss it, people are going to narrow their thinking. You want to make it as easy as possible for the people who think differently to speak up. Number two is your focus is on running the meeting is to, is to even the share of voice. Your focus is not to drive a consensus and not to drive the decision. What you should be spending your time and energy on is looking at the room or looking at the Zoom panel and say, okay, now who hasn't contributed? And, and you need to be thinking, we don't know what that person knows. We're deprived from what that person's perspective is. My job is to get all the perspectives out. The right decision will happen if we get everyone's perspective on the table. I'm confident of that. But when we state or the group gets roaring down a certain path, the people who think differently are quiet. So therefore, the people who are quiet are probably the most valuable opinions out there. And then we go ahead and make decisions, think, and then, and then we blame people later. Well, you know, everyone had a chance to speak up. Yeah, but you didn't run the meeting. You didn't structure the, you structured the meeting like an industrial age, get people, coerce people meeting, not a modern age. I, I want to value thinking as opposed to just execution and doing. You got to keep that. Yeah. But it's the it's we all living in the modern world. No, it's really the decision making is like if everyone can make computers just as well as anybody else. Why, so why are we paying more for an Apple computer? It's because of the decision making that goes behind the computer, not the makings of the chip and the assembly of the thing. Yeah, that that's helpful. I love that. So vote and then discuss. And uh, and you've actually you've done quite a bit of research, actually, David, on uh, understanding the dynamics on teams where there's a shared uh, there's sort of shared voices uh, and and uh, and some equality around that. Where bad decision making comes from teams where one or two people own the conversation. So that that's compelling too. My, one one final question for you, David, as you're assessing pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, what are some of the lasting impacts on leadership that you're sort of hypothesizing right now in your, in your daily uh, musings? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm guessing like everybody else, but I, I think number one, we're going to appreciate connection more. One of the things that I think is really cool, so one of our rules is that uh, we, or we say cameras on to connect. Now, uh, yeah. someone can it's obviously their choice and they can turn their camera off. We just, just know that teams that where people ha have their cameras on are going to be better connected than teams where people don't have their camera on. So for example, I had this closet door open, which looked sort of didn't, it was bad composition, 
for the um, uh, for the Zoom call. The reason I have it open is because I have a cat who likes to explore the closet, and so she may wander in here, and then she's going to start meowing. Well, you know, you learn things about people. You're a human being. You have pets. You have family. You have kids who are trying to go to school. You have a spouse. Whatever it happens to be, and so we can't. Like if we all just showed up at the office wearing our best office clothes, I can kind of convince myself that you're just an office worker, not part of a huge, uh, a full human being. I think those days are over. Yeah. And thank goodness for that. Yeah. Quicker connection and, and quicker vulnerability. Well said, David. Well, our, our time with you has gone by so fast and, and uh, you know, so many other questions that I that I'd have for you if we had more time. But I, I just want to take this opportunity on behalf of, uh, of our whole Unleashed community to thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. And we'll get, we're giving away some of your books at the end of the show at the top of the hour today. And we'll make sure it's easy for people to find you and get a hold of your material because it's super impactful and it's so tangible that anybody can start to use it to become a better leader, David. So thank you so much for being here today. Cheers. Have a, have a great rest of your session. I'm going to go ahead and put a couple links in the chat. Sure. Uh, I have these little videos called Leadership Nudges, where um, some of the ones that, I, that that we've talked about today, so people can share it with their team. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for what you guys do to make the world a better place. Cheers. Thanks so much, David. And we'll hope to see you back in Alberta again uh, someday sooner than later. For sure. So as we segue into our next uh, into our next portion of, of today's episode, I want to remind people of a new idea that we're trying out right now. It's the after party, the Unleashed after party. So if the first hour is not enough and you want to get together with other leaders and actually just talk about what you've just seen and what you've learned, you can join the after show uh, and uh, the link will be put into the chat. So you just have to simply click on that link or copy and paste it into your browser when the episode is over and join other leaders for, uh, for a conversation. And that conversation will go for as long as you want it to. So join us in the, uh, in the Unleashed After Party as, as soon as this episode is over. I want to also remind everybody that uh, we've got some generous partners that make Unleashed possible. And, and the first group is the hardworking team at the Edmonton Community Foundation. They connect donors and Edmonton area charities to help create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come through the power of endowment. And they make it really easy to get your donation dollars into the hands of those that need them most. You can connect with them at edfoundation.org. And our friends at Project Forest, a very, very cool startup venture, they're connecting corporations with their environmental goals. So if you've got some environmental goals, some targets that you have to meet, and also filling the country with lush forests and clean air, the team at Project Forest actually enables that to happen on your behalf. So connect with them for a conversation at projectforest.ca. Now, it's my distinct pleasure to, uh, to welcome uh, Captain Jeffrey White to the program. Now, uh, Jeffrey White is a captain in the Navy and the Canadian Armed Forces, and he joined the Royal Canadian Navy in 1996 following the completion of his Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology from uh, University of Guelph. That makes me think of George from Seinfeld, who was a, a part-time marine biologist, at least for one episode. And after completing his Naval Warfare Officer training, he quickly moved up the ranks and was given the prestigious appointment of commanding officer of the SAIL training ship HMCS Oriel, the Royal Canadian Navy's longest serving vessel, which he commanded from 2006 to 2008. After many years at sea, Captain White continued to serve the RCN in various shore postings, and during his time, he began his master's degree in military studies from the Royal Military College and completed several senior military courses, including attendance at the Canadian Security Study Program, Joint Warfare School, and the NATO Policy Senior Leaders Course, all of which contributed to, to developing him as a lifelong learner. Uh, he left full-time military service in 2012 after the tragic loss of his wife, and he moved to Calgary to start a new life. And that's where we are today. He's part of the Naval Reserves, and he is also a colleague of mine as a business execution specialist, and a specialist, and he helps companies in Western Canada apply military strategies to their corporate strategies so that they can win in the marketplace. Captain White, welcome to Unleashed. Thanks, Jeff. It's awesome to be here. It's uh, anytime I can combine my two worlds. Uh, they often call us citizen sailors because we have a citizen side where we have a civilian workforce. Uh, and then, of course, we're still serving the Canadian Armed Forces and Canadians. So 
it's awesome when I get to share those opportunities. Yeah, that's great. And thank you for your, thank you for your service now and, uh, and through the years. So as you were, uh, as you're listening to David Marquet, what were some of the things that you could relate to uh, really closely from, from what he had to say? Yeah, totally. And I remember when his book first came out and it was almost like required reading. Uh, and I think the big thing that stood out to me was if you were fortunate enough to have a great commanding officer to learn from, uh, someone who actually tried to grow you, you did great. But if you had a commanding officer that didn't want to grow people, you struggled, right? And and I, I think back to even doing alongside. Like it's one of the greatest things to do as a ship's captain is drive your ship alongside a port. But once you've mastered that as a captain, it's really no longer your job to do that anymore. And you need to hand the keys off to others to grow them. And if you've got a really great captain who lives that philosophy around intent and growing people then you do hand that control over and you grow others and you kind of stop driving your ship when you do get to be the captain and so it's a really interesting uh, dilemma that you go through as a captain where you have to give up the thing that gives you such great joy to switch to the great joy of training and, and coaching and developing the future generations yeah, and you know, and I've and I've seen you uh, give presentations to large groups of uh, of business leaders through the years since we've been colleagues. Uh, you do a really good job of taking military strategy and and sort of weaving it into the fabric of of, of business speak and and some of the things that we can uh, actually start to use to grow our businesses. And I know you've got some very um, some very strong opinions on some of the ways that we can do that and some of the things that business might might, might be sort of wise to adopt from the way the military operates. And I was yeah. wondering on the leadership side, like Jeff, we've talked some <clears throat> at times about uh, how leadership in the military differs from business leadership. And if you could maybe describe how they are different and, and what some of the problems that arise because of that. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it's precisely that the way we do leadership is completely different, but maybe the philosophy behind leadership. Um, you know, and what I've noticed when, especially when I came across from being in full-time service to then being part of the business community, is that the military focuses right away. When they start to develop and grow people, they, they start with leadership concepts and introduction of leadership at, at, right at basic training. And, and when you think of basic training, it's really trying to determine uh, whether someone's a good team player, a good fit, can they lead in the future? Do they fit our core values? Do they fit our ethics? Uh, can they participate in a team? And, and I would liken that to businesses that do a really good job on, of onboarding people. Like if you really onboard people well, they come out of say a two week period of onboarding where they've been able to fully be indoctrinated into your vision, indoctrinated into your value structure, really get to know the team and participate at the team level so that they are integrated as a team player and starting to work on that leadership development. And then of course, leadership never stops in the armed forces. It's always being developed. So even if you're being technically trained or technical skills, your leadership journey is going right beside that throughout. And I think the difference I see in business is, and, and it could just be because of that, that need to get stuff done and work and be profitable, that there's a lot of focus on technical skills on technical ability, the ability to do the job. And we don't really start to focus in on people being leaders until all of a sudden now they have to lead people or you're putting them into a management position and it's almost too late. Like they didn't even learn how to lead themselves, never mind small teams and grow that skill. And so I would say that philosophy around when do you introduce people to leadership uh, is very different. Yeah, Jeff, do you, have you seen a correlation? I know you work with a lot of different companies. Do you see a correlation between business outcomes and businesses that start that leadership development conversation sooner? Uh, 100%, because what you start to see is that decentralization of decision process and people with confidence to make decisions and to interact with one another, better communication, less safety incidents, uh, you start to see all sorts of that ownership, accountability sort of mentality that starts to develop. But of yeah. course, you need to have those leaders that uh, David spoke about, which can give up some layers of control. Because as people start to learn about leaders, as they start to demonstrate the ability to be a leader, they're going to search out that autonomy. They're going to want to master yeah. that. 
and they're going to want to then live that. And so you need to be able to relinquish some of your own control. Yeah, no, it's good. It's a good point, Jeff. I mean, and we know the sooner you start to invest in, in training your people, the retention gets stronger. You're also making me wonder about the selection process for leaders, because I think you know, we see companies make bad decisions on who they promote all the time. And I, and I wonder if we started leadership training before someone was actually a manager, if it would also give us some insight and intelligence that we could make better decisions on who to promote versus who to recognize, but keep where they're at and, and uh, not make the mistake of, of, uh, of making them a, a leader of others. A hundred percent. And I think where you can do that is when you start to develop young leaders or early stage leaders, you give them small tasks to accomplish with teams where it's not, you know, you can't jeopardize the company. You can't really cause a major safety incident or something. You start to give them these opportunities and through those opportunities, they gain confidence, but you also gain confidence that I can give them something harder. It's kind of like that Goldilocks effect that we've heard of where if, if you give people cold porridge, they're not going to stick around. But if you give them too hot, they fail. That's not going to help either. And so it's trying to find that that good spot where you can keep increasing the yeah. temperature of the porridge and growing people into better and better leaders. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Jeff, I, I want to segue into something else that tends to get a lot of uh, a lot of interest and it's and it's wargaming. And you know, here's something that research has, 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 has demonstrated is that there's a certain segment of leaders that really do treat business like a game. And it's an experiment, it's to be won, it's to be lost. And there's another segment of, of the population that, that treat it as a life and death thing, not as a game. So it's not to be messed with, not to be tinkered with. It's about being precise and being exact. But I think the workshops that you've run, of course, on Wargaming attracts that first group of leader. And I wonder if you could walk us through what is wargaming? And then how can we apply some of the wargaming sort of strategies and principles for our businesses? Yeah, um, so let me back up a little bit because wargaming is a component of planning uh, and, and it's really uh, wargaming is a way to trial uh, a plan before you actually run the plan, right? It's a de-risking strategy. Uh, so, so if I were to go back, it's actually part of something called the operational planning process which is, if you think of it, it's like if you had a big campaign plan, if you had to decide my company needs to pivot in this direction, which many companies are feeling that tension right now, or I need to enter into new geography, there's a, there's a significant risk in that process. And so there has to be some layers of planning that go into that. Not that we think of that as a business plan. In the military format, it's the operational planning process. So we evaluate the environment that we're going into. We, uh, we develop you know, courses of action or options. And then we analyze those options to see which ones are gonna be the most uh, fruitful and is actually gonna keep people alive while getting to the mission success. And so um, where Wargaming fits in is once you have the option, you've done the analysis, you have some options, you now wanna test that theory, right? It's almost like doing, I've heard in business sometimes the term of a pre-mortem. Right, like let's 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 kill the thing off early so we know what could go wrong, kind of idea. Yeah. And so in wargaming, what you do is you actually take two different teams. You take one team which has been really integrated into understanding the problem and working the solution to come up with the option, and then you have another team which it really understands the situation and the problem, but they haven't been part of the development of the the options and that like piece. So That's they don't have any skin in the in the game, kind of. So then what you do is you kind of do like a game. You play one move where you say, we're going to enter into this new market with this strategy, you know, at this time period. And then the other side gets to play against that by playing, you know, the enemy, which is I'm going to be your competitor. I'm going to be the government regulator. I'm going to be the environment. I'm going to be whatever. And they play against your play. And, and what you can do is bounce these ideas back and forth. And you have rules associated with the war game. And you have a referee that says, you know, you're getting out there. Like, you can't do that. That's, that's not within the scope. It's not within your assumptions. You know, you need to play your game properly. And what will come out of it is both sides have a far better understanding of the, of the plan. Uh, they have a better level of commitment around the plan. They probably worked really well together and had a lot of fun in that process. But then when bad things do happen in the future, it's built up resiliency of that team to be able to manage through that challenge. Like, 
oh, look at the competition's doing exactly what we thought, right? Or, whoa, yeah. the competition didn't do that in our war game. So yeah. what are we going to do now? And it just gives you a better level of, um, it, it really does give you a better level of success, you know, in your plan because of that resiliency and that ability to kind of perform as a team. Yeah, and it makes it safe for people to speak up. I like, uh, I like how you've said that. How do you? How many people do you involve in these teams, Jeff? Like, how how deep into the organization do you go, and like how how do you go about? What's is there an optimal way to to construct these teams in a business environment? It's really about the subject matter expertise. So, who has the subject matter expertise to be able to participate? You know, so you don't want the team coming in that doesn't have a clue what the competition's all about to play the competition because that's not going to work. But if you had one player that really knows the competition well, that player could play that role. So I would say about six to eight people would be would be workable. I think when we run like a campaign plan for like the invasion of country X, we'll have as many as 20 or 30 people around a table uh, playing all sorts of different uh, positions along that pursuit, because you may have a naval force, you may have an air force, you'll have army units, you'll have intelligence groups, like you'll have a whole whack of different pieces. I don't think it has to be that crazy in a business model. And, and, and there's lots of simple models within business to even get you close to a wargaming or a, or a, a pre-mortem pre sort of state. Like I grow, I often will coach I grow to teams. It's a decision-making process that you know yeah. talks about the issue, Where's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? What's our current reality? Where's the options? And then what's our way ahead, which is the plan, right? So there's lots of similarities that you can pull. And I bet you I grow came out of probably military planning. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a, there's a common phrase that we use that practice makes perfect. And it's not actually 100% accurate. It's, it's more that perfect practice makes perfect. So how does the military simulate plans first and, and how can we, what are some areas that we might be able to apply perfect practice in the business environment? Yeah, and it was interesting because David brought this one up and also um, Daniel Cole, when he spoke a couple of weeks ago, talked about the Navy SEALs and how many times SEAL Team 6 actually practiced the assault for Bin Laden. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, when it comes to practice, there's all sorts of pieces to this, right? Um, you can actually practice where you built like a fake city and you, you have your teams and you actually practice the plan, which would be taking that war gaming plan and now doing a, an actual enactment of it, which is awesome and super fun, but super expensive. But it's also little things, right? It's like just coming and showing up uh, well-tuned. So when you think of things like role play something, like you've got a really tough conversation to have with an employee, for example, you might wanna role play that with a friendly to make sure that, you know what, I'm not gonna trip up here. I'm not gonna let my emotions creep in because what is it really doing for you? It's, it's helping build your resiliency in the moment. It's also helping build your confidence so that when you walk in, you know you'll do well. You can think of customers and customer callings, cold calling often. Companies will do a lot of practice in cold calling so that people gain confidence, that they're more resilient, that they, that they don't feel threatened. And the same goes as any cru crucial sort of communications plan like a town hall, practice that. Like you want to show up with tons of confidence and confidence where your people then are going to be open and want to ask great questions and, and, uh, and you won't kind of come in, you know, a little broken. So I, I agree with you. I think it's that perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah, and there's cer certainly elements that you're referring to there that are mired in communication. Like a lot of those activities are, are, are about perfecting the way that we're going to communicate. So practice for that discussion first. I, I think that's a great tip, Jeff. And are there other things that the military does to communicate effectively that also translate into business? A hundred percent. And I think the one that I really do is, is clarity. It's about clarity, be super clear, right? So the military follows a very structured, as you could imagine, disciplined approach to communication where Every time we communicate, it's the same format. It's warning orders, op orders, fragment orders. They're, they're a very prescribed way of communicating, but it's always crystal clear. The mission is crystal clear. What the expectations are, are crystal yeah. clear. And, and it's fairly simple to have good structure around how do you ensure that you cascade orders down so that people understand. Now, it comes back to David's point around, you know, you don't want just robots following orders. 
So there's always that layer, especially in the complex world and chaotic world that we now operate in as armed forces, to make decisions and change directions. And the orders will allow for that as well, especially yeah. in the chaos of war. Like, But you also need everybody pulling in the same direction. And I think that clarity is key. Like anytime you hear about accountability, the number one thing in accountability is make sure you're super clear on the expectations and that you've gained massive commitment that they will go out and do. The rest kind of happens. Yeah. What do you get from pushback? Because you, uh, I know you work with a lot of leaders and yeah. uh, you're talking about these military tactics and strategies and terms all the time and trying to make things fun and interesting, especially for your longer term clients. What kind of pushback do you get from business leaders on using some of these military approaches? Yeah, probably the number one, uh, you know, beyond cost and time, which are always tough, right? Uh, the other one I get is, well, you could just order someone, Jeff, and they'll do, right? And that works only so far. Like, yes, if we want to take that hill, you can order them up the hill or put out the fire. But when it comes to hard life decisions, you can't order people in the modern world, right? They just start, they'll, just, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of uh, decide with their feet and march the other direction. So, yeah. so it's the same sort of challenges. And I think that's one pushback I get. The other two are really the biggest one, which is, this cost. does this cost a lot? Or does this take a lot of time? And no. And I guess that's the big thing. It takes brains. It takes thought. Um, but it doesn't take massive amounts of time or massive costs. You can do a war gaming in, in a half day if people are well prepared to go out and do something like that. You can write up great orders in a one-day strategy session. You can, um, you, know, you, can, you can grow leaders. You can indoctrinate and grow leaders with great onboarding in probably three or four days if it's done well. Uh, compared to companies that just kind of here's your pass, here's your coffee pass, and here's your you know door pass, and that's Johnny down the hall, and Jim's over there, and there's no kind of team integration. I mean, you yeah. can you can fix that in such a quick hurry. So yeah. I think the excuses are are weak. Yeah, yeah, you reminded me of a quote that James Clear had yesterday that it, the companies that uh, that set goals are aiming to achieve success once. Uh, companies that implement processes are looking to achieve success multiple times over a long period of time. And uh, it's kind of like that command and control. We might have some success uh, here and there, but certainly not sustainable success uh, over, uh, over a, a long horizon. Jeff, that brings us to our, uh, our favorite part of the episode is uh, three and 30. And you've got three things that you're suggesting leaders could do, three simple things in the next 30 days to start behaving a little bit more like a uh, intentional leader where they're building people up and uh, creating an environment of autonomy as opposed to command and control. What are those three things? Yeah, and I stole these from David. I won't, I won't, I won't take too much credit for these, but let's, let's face it, these were great. So let's uh, start with your employees using that intend to language. Like that's so powerful. I intend to do the following. What is that doing? That's giving them a layer of autonomy. It's getting you out of the mix. If, if, for example, to David's point, it's super problematic or dangerous zone, you still have your buffers that can say, well, did you think of this? Or have you considered that? And, and then they kind of get that sense and they can grow to your point of your story earlier. So I would, I would say drive that intent to language. It's, you have to be conscious about it. Next one, start specifying goals, not methods. When a commander gives, like for that operational planning process, when the commander gives the intent for the mission, it is that, it is an intent. This is what we need to achieve. And then the team goes out and does all the other work and comes back with solution spaces. And then you have more dialogue. And of course, uh, back to David's comment, that's when you can step in. And the last one was brilliant. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this tonight, which is give up control. And, and whether you do it at a restaurant or you do it with your kids or you do it with your wife, try giving up control. It is a muscle that needs to be learned over time. It doesn't feel comfortable. For those of you that are gonna to start to get ski boats out on the water, if you've mastered the job of driving your ski boat, get out of the wheel, let somebody else drive. Yeah, those are great. Uh, three simple tips we can all start doing. So Captain White, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today on Unleashed. Thanks for joining us. Uh, as a reminder uh, to our Unleashed community, you can stay connected with us and with the speakers. You can find David Marquet at his website, davidmarquet.com. If you have questions or comments for us about the show, 
reach us anytime at info at unleashresults.com and follow us on Twitter if you get a chance at Unleash Results. And you can find the episodes on YouTube or wherever your podcasts are found and go to unleashresults.com and you'll find the Unleash series page on the drop down menu under resources right there. And we're giving away some copies of David Marquet's book, Turn the Ship Around. All you have to do is click on the bonus materials at the end of the show, provide us with some feedback and you will be automatically entered into a draw uh, to win one of two copies of his book. And if uh, if you're also interested in and ready to take your business to the next step, we've actually got a complimentary LPI 360 leadership assessment we're giving out today with a 90-minute coaching debrief. So this means you're going to get a 360 comprehensive anonymous report about how the people that work with you view you. How good of a leader are you? Where's your blind spots? And then we're going to provide some coaching on what you do with the outcomes. So very impactful. Uh, you can click for that in the, uh, in the bonus material. And then join us next week for a very interesting conversation from New York. Kathy Solid is going to join us. She has done some remarkable research on how to build high-performing teams through the art of performance. And she suggests that if we treat growth as an experience and not something that we observe and then become, we can unlock potential that totally surpasses the boundaries and limitations that we impose on ourselves as adults. So it's a conversation you won't want to miss. Very unique. And until next time, I want to thank you all for joining us and just remind you that not to underestimate the impact that you can make on another person's life through your leadership. So good luck with that, everybody, in the next week and look forward to seeing you soon. See everybody at the after party.